Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne. We're broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network, coming to you on your local community radio station. On Facebook, someone recently said the Turnbull government was the worst government Australia has ever had. If you were running a book, something happened recently that lends some weight to this belief. Just before New Year, the federal government sent out a media release touting the cost of welfare blood... Oh, sorry, recipients. Murdoch tabloid said... Painful price of welfare costs revealed by Federal Treasury. The SBS said, Working Australians are forking out roughly $83 per week to fund the nation's welfare bill. Nine News said, The average Australian worker is handing over $83 per week to pay for the nation's welfare bill. Or as blogger Michael West puts it, No matter if they have worked hard all their lives, the intended narrative of the government's media drop is that aged pensioners and the disabled are welfare bludgers. Average taxpayers are handing over $35 every week to prop up aged pensioners, says the Daily Telegraph in high indignation. Prop up, says West... Do these pensioners really deserve to be propped up or shall we just put them out on the street? In 1946, Australians voted in a referendum for a federal system of social service provision. Not just the invalid and old age pensions, but provision of maternity allowances, widows' pensions, child endowment, unemployment, pharmaceutical, sickness and hospital benefits, medical and dental services, benefits to students and family allowances. We all know how hard it is to get all the states of Australia to agree on anything. That is why everyone who supported the yes vote for marriage equality was so happy with the referendum-like vote carried out before the passing legislation. In 1946, the majority of Australians saw that a communal system of support made a community. The Turnbull governments, those bludgers are costing you, the taxpayer, a set amount of dollars, a tack, was done after the Turnbull government hid the corporate welfare data coming out of the Australian Tax Office recently. When they released the tax transparency data before Christmas, showing many of the biggest companies in the world pay little or no tax in Australia, the government snuck the release out half an hour before the final vote in the same-sex marriage vote. The media dutifully missed the story. This year, the tax office data showed 354 of Australia's biggest companies have now paid zero tax in three consecutive years on a combined total income of $911 billion. Yeah, that's right, $911 billion. 
Murdoch's TV outfit Foxtel pocketed a 30 million handout from the government last year and has paid zero tax for three years on $8.4 billion of income, for an example. The Turnbull government clearly has a revenue problem. The setup at the moment will not be news to workers. The majority of Australia's tax take comes from PAYG taxpayers. Corporate and resources rent tax at $71 billion is dwarfed by the $194 billion paid by individual PAYG taxpayers. Uh, yeah, good day. Now, I don't know whether or not you noticed this in the run-up to the cliffhanger, uh, but some new unemployment figures were released last week, and if you thought unemployment was high beforehand, you might like to just grab your hat and go for a little stroll uh, for a couple of moments while the rest of us go through this for spelling mistakes. Uh, the reason that the new figures are a bit more lofty than the style to which we've become accustomed uh, is that someone's actually included some of the unemployed in the calculations this time, and the unemployed who've been included are called the hidden unemployed, which means, of course, that they're exactly the same as the rest of the unemployed in that they're unemployed, but they've been hidden from us by not having been mentioned in unemployment figures. And if you're not going to mention the unemployed in unemployment figures, it's highly unlikely that they'll show up anywhere else unless they all go overseas and are somehow mentioned as invisible exports. But the main thing about them is that there are half a million of them, and if they're added to the other group of unhidden unemployed, we're looking at about 900,000. Although, of course, you can't see the whole group because 500,000 of them are hidden behind things. But let's make no mistake about the country. The country is lucky. I don't know whether you've ever seen it from the air, but the higher you get, the luckier it looks. And, of course, this applies on the ground as well. Uh, I must admit, though, I was very surprised about the 500,000 hidden unemployed. It hadn't occurred to me that some people are sufficiently disheartened to just completely give up and not even register as unemployed. This is a big surprise to me. I had no idea about this. Uh, and, of course, none of the other people around here had had any ideas about just about anything for a very long time, which might have been part of the problem, of course, although I do wish somebody had hidden it better. I'll get out of your way now. I'll see you later. That was the late but great John Clark reminding us that governments have lots of ways of getting around their responsibilities. Today, we are talking tax and social security. Stick Together went to the latest social and economic forum held late last year. Yes, Turnbull and Slow Mo were there, but so was Professor Bob Gregory from the Australian National University talking tax. Here is a part of the speech. Now, I want to get on to the what I call the looming and obvious tax crisis. There's sort of three pictures you've got to take away. This is picture number one. And I want you to contrast what I'm telling you compared to the treasures, what the treasurer's going to tell you. So the blue line here is government revenue, which you think of it as tax, over GDP. And the orange line is government expenditure payments over GDP. And I start in 1970 and I go to 220. Remember I showed you before this, how we went through this big structural change in the labour market, the loss of all those jobs? Well, we paid for those jobs, a loss, and we paid for it through the welfare system, and we paid for it by the rising taxes. And you can see the big rising taxes and rising expenditures in the 70s and 80s. That's the expansion of welfare, the reaction to the job loss. And then basically more or less constant, except the incomes go up and down. But look, look at the big gap between... Uh, the orange and the blue. You see, to go to 1990, that's a 91 recession. 91 recession, a huge recession in Australia. Very, very big. Uh, lots of fall of taxes, lots of increased expenditure. You come, to two th you come to the GFC, a huge change in expenditure relative to income. It looks like a major recession. 
Looks exactly like 1991. But I already showed you that we escaped. So here's the first puzzle to, to think about. How come the government got itself into a situation that looks like 1991, a major recession, when we didn't have a major recession? That is a really interesting issue, and that comes basically out of more or less the boom conditions in Australia pre-global recession, global GFC. Because in that, in that period, we were swimming in tax revenue. And Peter Costello began cutting taxes in various ways, and when he cut taxes early in the period, the 2000, they bounced back again. But all of a sudden, he cut taxes in a really big step, personal income taxes, just before the GFC. So that big fall in tax revenue is a government decision, basically, not a GFC decision. And so government now has to claw it back. So that's the first point. The second point is that since the GFC, and maybe say a year or two after, the rhetoric starts that what governments are going to do is balance the budget by controlling expenditure. If you look at the orange line, government has been very successful at controlling expenditure. It hasn't gone up. It's not been very successful at reducing expenditure as a factor of GDP. What's gone up is the tax take. So these numbers, which come from the budget statement, from the back of the budget statements, just writing them all down, and then going into the projection and forecasts of the Treasury, and then going into the projections and the forecasts of the Parliamentary Budget Office, show that the key policy st stance of the government, as measured by what has been achieved and as measured by what they are forecasting, is that they will increase taxes to remove the deficit. You read the statements in the budget, speech, you'll hardly ever find that. You'll find that all the emphasis on expenditure. So it's really, we're really in a world where there's going to be very big rises uh, in, in taxes, and they're still coming. The blue line is where we are now. You see the increase in taxes looking ahead is roughly equal to the increase of taxes we've had, had to date. So as a rule of thumb, you say to yourself, if this world comes about, 100% of this deficit will be closed by rising income, by rising taxes. Now, if you put on top of that any increased recession around the corner or any increased stress and strain with more unemployment, it's going to make this really hard. The other problem is that what it's going to mean is to achieve this increase in, in taxes, government's going to have to be very, very re reluctant to give taxes away. And yet, treasurers keep talking about cutting company taxes. They keep talking about cutting taxes. And yet the whole, predicament, the whole projection period is we won't do that. If they start cutting taxes, then this will not be achieved. So here, here, if you look at this, the orange is the company taxes. See company taxes rising. Up to the GFC, they fall. The forecast ahead is we want to cut company taxes. So they get removed as a contributor to the income. The grey line is indirect taxes, GST. It turns out that all the increased taxing capacity that we got from the GST, we gave away by reducing other indirect taxes. The whole increase in taxes is going to come about by personal income tax increases. Now, personal income tax increases are really neat, right? Because 
If you get, decide to make all your tax increases come from personal income taxes, you never have to announce that. You can always focus on tax reductions and never talk about this because you don't have to do anything to increase personal income tax. What increases personal income tax is bracket creep. So as long as the average nominal wage keeps growing, the income tax will keep growing. Now, this picture then shows you, that, again, quickly, the, the tax shares. The red line is the personal income tax. The orange line is the company tax. And the green tax is the GST, indirect taxes, all relative to 2000. But the bottom line is that a government looking ahead, if it achieves these forecasts, is a government, whichever persuasion, which is going to involve substantial increases in personal income tax. Uh, and these substantial increases are going to come about through indexation. The big pressure on the government is twofold. One, how do I meet extra demands that are going to be placed on, on me from the expenditure side? And second, how can I avoid giving back some of these tax rises? And my personal view is they're not going to be able to avoid giving back the personal tax rises or some of them. So this tension is going to be the source of growing populism and, and growing dissatisfaction in Australia. Right? Because the pressure is going to be there not to be able to meet the demands. The, the government does three things, basically, when it looks ahead. It forecasts for a couple of years, the Treasury, then it projects for a couple of years, and then it sort of projects right out to 2028. As a Parliamentary Budget Office that also goes to 2028. Look what happens to the orange line and the blue line in the, in the 20s. Nothing. So then you say to yourself, isn't this weird? How come all of a sudden we're just getting straight lines? And I said to myself, well, what happened to ageing? It was only a conference or two here that we were worrying about ageing. Ageing should have that orange line going up, surely. And so there's no ageing. But they take account of ageing. So what have they done? What they have done is they, they have within budgets changes which, you know, you must wonder whether they'll come about. In the ageing thing, for example, one of the reasons why ageing does not become a problem is that large numbers of pensioners switch from full-time pensions, full pensions to part pensions. And then you have to ask the question, do you think that's going to happen in the future? Now, it's true that super will rise a bit, uh, but you've got to, got to ask that question. I want to make two, two points about ageing. The first one was, when you look at what's going on in the labour force, it is surprising how much employment is growing amongst the 55 to 65s. Uh, men who were withdrawing from the labour force for a couple of decades have sort of started to hang on a little bit, uh, and women are, are coming in a bit. So, so there is a growth of, of that, that older age group, but it's not big enough uh, to make a huge difference to, to the budget implications, in my view, because it's largely being offset uh, by reductions in employment uh, amongst the young. Now, why that actually is mapping that way. Why the young are actually mapping the declines and the older going up, why that is, I don't quite know. The second thing I want to talk about very, very quickly, which I think is going to be a source of stress, is as we've increased the pension age from 65 to 70, 
what you find is the major impact of that is not increased employment between 65 and 70. The major impact of that is a movement from the old age pension to other forms of income support. You'll see that in the parliamentary budget, budget office. People will move to disability and they move to New Start. The really interesting thing about New Start is, it's, is this government's policy and the previous government's policy to try and make sure that unemployed people do not get any of the increases in income coming from productivity gains. What do I mean by that? I mean they basically want to index unemployment benefits and so on on the CPI. So that freezes your income level to, to where, it, where it was when that was introduced. In all these forecasts going ahead for 15 years, there is no growth in, new, in unemployment benefits in real terms. That means for the group between 65 and 70 who are moving from old age pension, which is growing with productivity, into new start, we're creating new poor. So when governments talk about income inequality, my guess is that on average governments have contributed to that. And, my, and the way that's coming about is the lack of indexation uh, of the unemployed and sole parents with kids over six. Now let me just give you an indication of how big that would be. If we get 1.5% productivity growth over the next decade, that is equivalent, roughly speaking, to cutting New Start by $100 a fortnight relative to living standards today. Then, rather, relative to living standards then. But if you compare them to, say, an old age pension getting uh, wage indexation, uh, they will drop back 100 bucks. That's, that's very big. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories and social justice issues. We are at the Social and Economic Forum held late last year. We go from the tax problem to a talk given by Anglicare Deputy Director Roland Mandelson. Mandelson was asked to speak in the session titled The Investment Approach to Welfare. And I have to say, Mandelson was the closest to an angry voice in the whole well-fed, silver-tailed entourage at the two-day event. So the priority investment approach, it's kind of something that's been picked up from New Zealand, who for some reason themselves decided to adopt an insurance industry's risk management approach to human services or to welfare services. Uh, It's a system that was being set up in New Zealand which has never been peer-reviewed. It's intended to bring people off welfare or to pay them less. That's kind of the key KPI. The rationale is that it's investing in the people who will profit the most from it, but the outcomes aren't actually about caring for the people. The outcomes are about cutting the cost of welfare. So that was the New Zealand model. And they started collecting a lot of data on particular clientele, particular cohorts of people who they targeted as the people who they could uh, invest in to cost less. Uh, The Australian government... I think has built a more useful database in that it's gone much more broadly. It's, it's tried to collect all the information that's got available to it on what programs it funds and what the outcomes are. Um, and so arguably to help us all see, and particularly the government to see, what effect government programs are having. Uh, 
but government is actually playing both sides of the street. It's flying the line that this is a strategy to bring down welfare costs by catching bludgers out and stopping them costing too much. At least it's been allowing that to run in the media. Um, at the same time, they are using it to explain that they are focusing on the most vulnerable people who will profit the most from a greater investment. So I'll now move to my prepared comments. So I'd suggest we should frame the discussion of, of priority investment in terms of creating a better, more inclusive society. I think you've actually got to... It's really funny because in the Productivity Commission discussions that we're having now, we're saying, well, what are the outcomes? You know, if you aren't clear about the outcomes, you can't be clear about why you're doing what you're doing, nor whether you're succeeding or not. And I think the outcome shouldn't be about investing more in disadvantaged people so they cost us less in terms of welfare. Let's actually have outcomes that are more meaningful for all of us, and then we can know whether we're succeeding. And that's why we're saying that the priority investment should be in terms of creating a better, more inclusive society. And that means the investment is a partnership with people at risk of ongoing hardship or disengagement, with people facing big challenges, and then looking for improved wellbeing and participation in our society for them. So it's about saying, who's up against it the most? Who's most at risk of not being engaged and connected to the wider society and having a stake in it? How can we work in partnership with them to make it work better? And yes, that will cost some more money up the front, but that's actually better for all of us. But it's a subtle difference between that and saying, how do we cut down on our welfare exposure to these people by getting them to work sooner rather than later? So that's, I guess our, my argument is that should be the point of all human services and indeed the point of welfare. It's about governments doing what markets cannot, ensuring that opportunities are shared and that everyone has enough to have a decent life. We should be using our system to make Australia more equitable, something we should actually strive for rather than kind of, you know, be worried if that's what's going to happen. So if we all begin by talking about the cost of welfare, we begin in the wrong place. It should be about how we affect change in our society so that everyone can have a stake, how we can ensure that everybody counts. And I will get to the issue of how we pay for that investment because that was how the way the session was framed. But I'd first of all like to explore a bit more what we're investing in. There are really major changes underway in the Australian society and the economy. Um, we could talk about cha the changing shape of work, including the exploitation of part-time and casual workers. And we could talk about the impact of climate change, that hasn't come up yet, I've noticed, which will not only reshape agriculture, tourism and global security, but will badly affect the daily lives of the least affluent and mobile people across Australia and around the world. We could talk about politics and entertainment becoming increasingly segmented, allowing us all to see the world through the narrowest prism we choose, we choose with you know, really disruptive and damaging consequences. So we could also look at the dramatic growth of automated work at sophisticated white-colour levels and, and the massive demand for personal care work that our changing demographics and social expectations will now require. So if we all want to talk about priority investment, and I can steer clear of taking on the ideological blinkers that seem to be preventing us from investing in a society focused on meeting the climate change challenge, for example, and I, I cannot get distracted by the promise of a universal basic income as a positive response to our changing economic circumstances, which would have the immeasurable benefit of stepping away from separating us into winners and losers and seeing us all instead as individual members of a society with unique values, perhaps we should start at the loss of so many entry-level and immediate post-university jobs on the one hand, and the need for a more empathic, problem-solving, person-centred workforce on the other. So let's come back to the people targeted by the Australian government when it took its first steps along the priority investment path. Some of you may remember. It's teenage parents, it's young people disengaged from school, and it's young carers. Well, how many of them are there? There are about 400 teenage parents each year. It's not a large number. And so what do those young people need to make their lives less precarious? It might seem obvious, but money actually is a major consideration. They have inadequate incomes to live on. 
Secure housing, one of the key areas for priority investment, I would have thought, is another major need, as is childcare. And it's worth noting that this government wasn't prepared to guarantee two full days childcare in last year's childcare package, even though the evidence is clear that starting school well prepared is the key measure that can make a difference for those most at risk of falling behind. But the government was wanting to save money and it wasn't prepared to guarantee two days, full, two full days childcare for those kids who are most at risk. All young parents, along with young carers and disengaged students, are reputed to cost us millions. Apparently we are never the investment targets, have you noticed? They cost us millions. Um, there are two things I have to say to that. Firstly, in, has anyone factored in the value of the child raising? And that's a general question we can ask about women's work. We can ask it in a lot of different ways about you know, factoring in the, the, the value of raising children. Um, but for these young people who are supposedly costing us millions, these parents... They would cost us a few less millions if we factored in the cost of the, the value of the childcare, of the child raising that they, that they do. Um, and we could start to recognise that. Secondly, let's look at the numbers. The total cost from government revenue to provide the inadequate support these young people received is minimal compared to, say, the cost of age pensions or the tax payments that come with superannuation income exemptions or capital gains tax exemptions. You can see where I'm going with that one. But I absolutely agree with the Minister and the Government that the small group of people who profit more than anyone from additional resources and focused support should be the priority investment. So let's work with these young people and the organisations that have their trust to see what difference that will make. I know that St Luke's in Bendigo, now part of Anglican Victoria, didn't direct their work with young mothers to a parenting program per se, but on providing certified training in childcare. I know that in East Arnhem Land, Anglicare NT has worked with local communities to support a ceremonial welcome home to young mothers when they return with their babies so that their communities and they themselves see themselves as mothers, not just as girls who've had babies, and they can be taken seriously on taking on and they can be supported by the communities and by their community organisations to take on those responsibilities of being a young mother. So the problem here we have is uh, in language and culture. Young carers, young parents and young people disconnected from school aren't the drain on the government's balance sheet that superannuation concessions are or the age pensioners are. We know that's a function of demographics, by the way. I'm not really having a go at age pensioners. They aren't the drain that capital gains tax concessions are or that tax cuts in 2007 still are. So we need a sense of proportion. The cost of our social security program, to use the language of this government and what I would describe as the thoughtless media, is $109.9 billion. The vast and growing proportion of that is made up of the age pension at 44.2, and if we factor in the tax payments for superannuation, which we should, about another 50 billion. The cost of the grossly inadequate new start and youth allowance payments, the bill for people out of work, is only 14.6 billion, and shrinking is a proportion of that. And so, out of that, this, these targeted uh, high priority um, uh, social invest, uh, the, the uh, priority investment targets are a really small amount of money. So we're not saving a huge amount by doing this. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. You've heard I've tried to describe how I think we should do it. But just to make the point that we're blurring the edge between cutting down the costs of the burden of welfare as opposed to investing in people so that they can contribute and be part of our society, there's a problem with the language, and the language then makes a problem in how we live together as a society. We don't make the investments we should because we're seeing people as a burden. And then I'm saying we. So I'm on the side of the government. I'm on the side of the Australian newspaper. I'm on the side, you know, of everybody who'd like to think it's a welfare as a burden, but it's not. It's tax and transfer and welfare is there as a way to create the society that we want the society to be. That's it for today's Stick Together. Thanks to you for listening. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch ya next time. Mm-hmm.
I dreamed a doctor told the judge from the arbitration court that he would only live to preside over one more case being fought. The judge's conscience was ill at ease, says this lift next case is my last. To hand down a fair decision might make up for my unjust past. Well, the very next case it was to come before this very worried sage was a request to raise by 52 bob the weekly basic wage. The old fella granted the wage in full and to assure his place in heaven. He made the payment retrospective to 1907. The very next payday after the case, well I couldn't believe my luck. The paymaster brought me wages out on a forklift truck. I dream we got paid on a Friday and on that lovely night. My Nicholas sent out an armoured car for to get me home alright. On the way we stopped at the RSL and as we walked inside a poker machine took a look at my pay and committed suicide. I looked around as I heard a voice behind me softly speak. Twas Dr Coombs trying to borrow a quid for to see him through the week. Then the alarm went off and I recalled as I was waking up That people dreamed they saw the horse that won the Melbourne Cup But they can't remember what number it was, well me dream was just the same For I can't for the very life of me remember that judge's name